This is an AI Group podcast. In this podcast, we'll be discussing the most significant workplace relations issues over the month of September 2022. The full members-only report is available on our website at aigroup.com.au. It's in the news section under reports and policy papers. With me today to discuss the key aspects of this latest report is Brent, Brent Ferguson. Hi, Brent. Good day, Tony. Uh, Brent is AR Group's Head of National Workplace Relations Policy. I'm Tony Melville, AR Group's Head of Corporate Affairs. We'll just focus on a few issues in this brief podcast today, and they are the Jobs and Skills Summit, which Brent and I both went down to, and uh, Chief Executive Innes Willocks and Megan Lilly were there. A lot of talk on skills, but also a lot of talk on IR, bargaining laws, multi-employer bargainings, a lot of controversy. We'll also talk about the paid domestic violence leave bill, the annual leave shutdown case, and the professional award case, both cases that everyone really should be across. So I'll get right into it now. Now, the summit, was it was a couple of weeks ago now in Canberra, but it still lingers on in terms of uh, influence and implications. The re- the Probably the biggest issue from members' point of view was talk of the reform of bargaining laws and multi-employer bargaining. So you want to talk about the general bargaining first and then go into the multi-employer? Yeah, look, happy to, Tony. I think, as you say, uh, one of the most controversial aspects of the summit uh, was the discussion around reform of bargaining laws. Now, uh, in that context, you had employer groups pushing for, you know, some really necessary improvements to the system. Uh, to make some sensible changes to make it more flexible and frankly simpler to use. It's become a real minefield for employers. Uh, Conversely, you had unions uh, saying that the system needed much broader reform in order to enable uh, some of the groups that haven't traditionally utilised it to access bargaining and to drive increases in wages. Now, it'll probably play out in a couple of different ways. Um, Firstly, there is discussion going on post the summit between the groups and the government. And, And really, that's because... Bargaining is one of the areas of the summit where we didn't reach a lot of consensus. The detailed work is being done now. So I was going to ask you about that process. How is that work? Are you to and from Canberra and with other industry organisations as well and government? Yeah, that's right. So the government's holding discussions with the interested parties, the key interested parties. So the ACTU, also key employer groups. Now, it's meant that you know, I'm back and forth to Canberra every few days uh, for detailed discussions uh, with the department where we work through the kinds of issues uh, that they're looking at potentially legislating. Okay, I know the, the conversations that will be uh, confidential, but there's, is there some common ground agreement on what the problems are and that maybe the, what can be fixed? Yeah, look, I think there, firstly, Tony, they are, there is a degree of confidentiality, so we can't share the detail, but I think there is a shared uh, acceptance that there's a complexity to the system uh, and there's a shared desire to make the system simpler. Uh, I think where we start to diverge is... Uh, really uh, what that means and what the fix should be. Now, for employers, the key issue is that we want the process to be made simpler, much simpler. It shouldn't be that there are highly prescriptive rules around how you conduct the vote, how you explain the terms, how you make the application for your agreement. There's lots of improvements that can be readily made. Everyone knows the issues. The other issue is the boot. Now, without getting into the details, uh, in practice, better off overall test. The better I'm off sure overall test. Sure yeah, I, I think we've all used the term so often. But yeah. uh, it, in practice, employers often raise concern that the way it's applied by the commission is is overly inflexible, um, and it's, that it's implied in an abstract way. That it means that agreements that are struck that all parties want uh, and recognise uh, as being beneficial to workers are getting knocked back. Now, you know, there's lots of discussion around what precisely uh, we should do to fix that. But I think the significant point is, you know. 
probably going into the summit, the minister had made it very clear that he had a reluctance to touch the boot. Uh, but where we've got to is that it is squarely on the table. And, and I think you can expect some change to make that more flexible to be realised. Okay. The elephant in the room at the Jobs and Schools Summit was multi-employer bargaining. The ACTU, Sally McManus, came out and said that this was a great ambition of theirs to, to, to get back to the days where you could have, presumably, because there was no detailed industrial action, across sectors, across industries, uh, across, say, all childcare centres in the country, not just one particular branch of childcare. So where are we at with the multi-employer bargaining discussion debate? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the truth of it is that the, the union uh, developed a concept, an idea, that bargaining should be more readily available uh, across employers so that employees should have a greater capacity to uh, coordinate their efforts uh, to bargain uh, against groups of employers, be it a sector or a smaller group of employers. But there has little, little detail put about precisely what they are after. And so there's more questions than answers at the moment. So it might only be something like uh, aged care workers or health workers. They might not even be talking about the whole economy, like all the well, motor, motor dealers or something. I think the unions have identified areas where they would say it has particular justification. So yeah. some, manufacturing, does well, that come into Well, that's the concern, it? right? So yeah. it, it's, it, the argument is that it's necessary in the care economy, you know, the childcare sector, uh, perhaps even in small business, where there are sectors that haven't been traditionally able to bargain. I mean, some of those sectors, to be frank with you, Tony, can access multi-employer bargaining now, potentially under the Fair Work Act, but unions have rarely tried. Um, I, I think the alarm is, uh, for, for many uh, participants in industry, that while they're pointing to those, that the bigger agenda or intent may be to get it across the sector of the industry more broadly. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's the concern. Well, the, the UWU, um, United Workers Union, put out a... Well, they had a paper reported this week or something from last year, but that had a few scary bits. In well, it I think there was reference to supermarket supply chains and so forth. I mean, that's the big concern. We yeah. don't need to see the transport and logistics industry suddenly shut down yeah. uh, by sector-wide bargaining, you know, or, or, or sectors of the manufacturing industry where this really makes no sense because there's been so much established bargaining. Now, as I said to you, we need to see the detail on okay. what it is. And it's being canvassed to some degree, but really there is a lot of work to do. Okay, so leaving the sum leaving the summit aside, and those talks will continue, no doubt, for months. Uh, we don't know timeframes. It, it is happening intensely, uh, and uh, you know we really can't be specific how long it would take. But I think quite clearly the government has intent to do something and to do something quickly, and it will move ahead of uh, yeah. other areas. And there'll be opportunities for feedback from members and. As far as so we're we we'll be keep, keeping engaged with members, and members who are concerned should certainly reach out. But. Um, uh, we hope that there'll be meaningful consultation with industry permitted in the development of any legislation. And the, and the process too, once yeah. they do get the legislation, they're, they're still committed, aren't they, to that coil process, the Committee on Industrial Law, where we get involved in yeah. going through the law when they've got it written. That's right. So our group has special bill. standing on various government committees to, to look at legislation as it's de being evolved, uh, developed and to have feedback. And we will exercise that. But we're at the table now yep. working through it anyway. Okay. Okay, the next issue to talk about is the, there's a lot happening in Canberra, the Paid Domestic Violence Leave Bill. Where are we at with that? Uh, well, members will recall that over recent years, there was a case conducted by the full bench of the Fair Work Commission, uh, responding uh, in large measure to an ACTU claim for introduction of 10 days of paid domestic violence leave. Now, that culminated in a decision by the full bench to grant paid domestic violence leave, but to not grant it in the terms proposed by the ACTU. In various respects, they found their proposal unworkable or unreasonable and instead suggested an alternate 
form of entitlement. Now, um, following that decision being handed down, uh, and before we could get to the next phase of those proceedings, we had the election of the Labor government and the announcement of their intent to introduce a bill. They've introduced legislation uh, and it's actually passed the House of Representatives now. And, and the next step will be for it to be, of course, um, looked at by the Senate. So we have two, uh, I think there's two or three weeks left of Parliament this year because of the various disruptions. Uh, it may well not be this year. Well, I think that's unclear. It clearly has been a big priority. It was one of the first things that this government did uh, in, in terms of introducing the bill. But I think the real issue is here, members should be aware that that bill departs from the position that the uh, full bench of the Commission landed on. In various respects, it's significantly more onerous uh, for employers, but I think perhaps even more importantly, it doesn't, you know, in mechanical ways, it operates very differently to what the Commission uh, contemplated. And it's going to be a real challenge for employers to deal with some of the elements of how it actually works. So how, for example, so one of the issues is the full bench identified that uh, employers should be paid at their base rate of pay. This legislation adopts a proposal that employees would get their full rate of pay for the time they would have worked had they not been on the leave. Now, you know, on one view, the justification is that employees experiencing this sort of trauma shouldn't uh, suffer any reduction because it might be a disincentive to take the leave. The real problem is how do you calculate that? Lots of awards and industrial instruments set contingent entitlements. So certain allowances, for example, or piece rates, that the entitlement is worked out depending on what you actually do during the day of work. It, it is potentially impossible, frankly, to work out the full rate of pay with certainty in those sorts of circumstances. And it's really unclear how that's going to play out. We've raised that with the government and we can only hope that those sorts of issues are picked up by the Senate. Okay, sounds like a bit of work to do there. So there are a couple of couple of interesting cases before the Commission. The first, the first of the two is the annual leave shutdown case. What's happening there? Yeah, look, I think this is a case that uh, just needs to be on employers' radar if they apply awards. Um, just to give you a very high-level context, um, many awards include shutdown provisions in their annual leave clause. So they are clauses that uh, effectively enable an employer who elects to shut down their business uh, to direct people to take annual leave uh, for the period of the shutdown. And if they don't have enough leave to cover the shutdown, to take unpaid leave. Um, uh, the difficulty is the full bench or a majority of the full bench who looked at those clauses as part of the four-year review awards has come to the view uh, that the ability to direct somebody to take unpaid leave uh, is an unenforceable term. So that awards can't include terms that enable an employer to make someone take unpaid leave during the period of a shutdown. Uh, and, and also form the view that even if awards could, um, from a jurisdictional perspective, that it wouldn't be fair in essence and that they would delete those provisions. Now, that has a huge significance for employers uh, in the lead up to Christmas. Um, the bench at this stage has just expressed that view and they have developed a alternate model clause that would be potentially inserted into every modern award that has a shutdown clause, but that clause doesn't include the right to direct people to take unpaid leave. So you could have situations where um, someone starts work at a new job in November, they haven't accrued any leave, and then they've got a two-week shutdown in January. That's right, and so the award itself won't give the employer the right to, um, to direct someone to take that leave. So I think that the case itself has some way to go. Uh, the Commission is going to release draft determinations, and that just means a draft version of these clauses. And then there's an opportunity for parties to make submissions about the conclusions they've reached in the proposed clause. And AI Group will certainly put a submission in advancing that and uh, no doubt challenging the logic of the full bench. But if the position is maintained, it does mean that employers are going to have to look at how they manage leave 
out very closely very closely to make sure people have leave accrued uh, in order to um, uh, to cover the period of the shutdown I mean this is a negative for employees as well because you get to October and you, you've got to go away for a, a week or two and your boss will say no you can't go to that wedding because I, uh, you won't have enough leave I think that's that's the, one of the implications potentially is that employers will have to manage leave much more carefully at the moment frankly there's generally a very cooperative approach taken uh, with employees um, consequence being that someone might have to take some unpaid leave you know, employers are going to have to get ahead of that and, and failing they're going to have to look at what other options they've got in terms of you know getting employees to agree to take periods of unpaid leave and so forth but it is a real uh, you know a really significant issue mm. and surely a lot of the other organizations are also on the same page on this one so we'd be there'd be a lot of support to look we, we we probably played a significant role in the proceedings in terms of advancing employers' interests, but, and we will continue. But I would expect that other associations will also um, support uh, concerns around the workability of this clause, but we'll just have to watch and see. Okay, the last one, the professional award, professionals award case. What's happening? Uh, look, again, I'll just give you a, a, a sense of what's happening there so people are aware. Um, look, that's an award that essentially covers certain professional employees, you know, certain engineering employees, scientific employees, and certain IT professionals. Now, unlike most awards, it takes a very flexible approach to the remuneration structure. In short, there is a annualised salary that's payable. And then there's a clause that requires the employer, in effect, to consider what work is done by employees, you know, what additional hours or overtime is worked, you know, what sort of callback work is performed by staff, and to take that into consideration when setting additional remuneration or benefits beyond that salary. Now, as part of the, initially as part of the four-year view of awards, the Commission has looked at that clause, the governing the remuneration under that award, and formed the view that it's unenforceable. Now, what they've raised is the prospect that the award should potentially include overtime provisions, for example, for hours beyond 38 hours a week. Um, PESMA, the main union party involved in this, is going to advance its submissions probably on Monday, and um, we expect that they will file a proposal that employers have to pay some sort of overtime. Uh, now, that'll be a big shift for a lot of employers who don't pay overtime to their professional staff. They treat them like other professionals and, and pay a salary. High-level managers. And Th that's right. Employees who often agree, exercise a high degree of you know, um, authority themselves over what hours they work. They make the decision quite often as to what hours they will work precisely. Now, the idea that you would have to uh, go to a sort of Bundy clock mentality of recording hours and, and paying them for every hour of work really just is out of step with what employers do and frankly with what a lot of employees want. Uh, but that is the sort of change that is potentially on the cards. We'll have to see what comes in from the unions, but we will be certainly arguing to make it as flexible as possible for employers. Okay, there's another big case to, to be working on there. It never ends. Okay, look, that's that's it for this Our Group podcast on the significant issues brief of September. As I mentioned, you can get it on Our Group's website, if you remember, on aigroup.com.au under the news section, reports and policy papers. Thanks a lot, Brent Ferguson, Our Group's head of National Workplace. Thanks for that, Tony. Okay, see you next time.